Acts chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 12. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Um, before, um, before we get into tonight's passage, um, I, I want to teach you some German. Is that okay? That might feel like an unusual request, but I'll explain. As we were um, worshipping, uh, I reached the point um, of feeling tonight like my, my words were no longer enough. Like my own... Um, my own, what I could articulate and what I could say wasn't enough. And some people, when they're um, worshipping and they're very spiritual and they run out of words, they'll break into something that we call tongues, which is like an expression. I'm not quite that spiritual. I, I break into German. So um, I want to teach you some German. And I've not, um, I've not taught myself it. Alice, who studied languages, knows German and she's taught me it. I want to uh, teach her words now. Are you ready? I'm going to say it and then I want you to say it back to me, okay? Okay, the word is... Weltschmerz. Say that. Weltschmerz. Try it again, but slightly more confident. Weltschmerz. Weltschmerz. Now, Weltschmerz is a very particular word. and We don't have it in the English language. It means world pain. It means when your heart is heavy with the events that are going on in the world. I don't know about you tonight, but I am full of Weltschmerz tonight. I'm full of Weltschmerz for the uh, stuff that's happened in Manchester this week for the um, unbearable and unspeakable atrocity, for the targeting of young girls, young children. I'm full of uh, Weltschmerz for uh, what's happened in uh, Egypt as Coptic Christians, our brothers and sisters in faith, have been targeted and attacked. And I'm full of Weltschmerz tonight for the retaliation of Egypt. I think one of the things we've learned is that violence doesn't get you anywhere. Violence just brings more violence and more violence and more violence. So maybe tonight you, like me, are full of Weltschmerz. So I want to um, acknowledge that before uh, we go into this passage uh, tonight, that we are heavy with the pain of the world, that sometimes uh, our own words, our own language fails, and we need to look beyond it. 
uh, to acknowledge how we're truly feeling. So let's uh, pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we bring you um, our own Welchsmuts tonight. We bring you our own pain, the struggle and the strife of our world. And God, tonight we pray uh, heaven down to earth. We pray your peace. We pray your justice. We pray your kindness. God, wherever there's a, a longing in our heart for, um, for revenge, for retaliation, Lord God, we ask that you would bring your perspective. You would bring your peace, your kindness. We bring you um, all of the things happening in our own uh, lives at home and at work as well, where our hearts are heavy tonight. We lay it before you, Jesus. And we thank you that your uh, presence and your word speaks directly uh, into each of those situations. So God, tonight, as we uh, bring you everything that we are, uh, we ask that you would speak to us, you would transform us, and you would change us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. When uh, I was at university, uh, I decided to take up rowing. Now, um, I did it just for one year because I, I realized that rowing makes me a truly terrible person. Uh, I was uh, rowing in the gym uh, one day um, after maybe six months of training and I was trying to get a particular uh, time to qualify for a, a boat. Um, and I was uh, rowing and rowing and rowing and, and trying as hard as I possibly could. And then a friend stopped what they were doing and they started to encourage me and to cheer me on. And I just missed out on the time that I was going for. And in that moment, I completely lost it. I swore loudly at my friend and I blamed them for me not getting uh, the time that I wanted. Uh, I, I realized that rowing makes me a truly terrible person. So I only did it for one year. But um, that year was uh, an interesting time. Uh, if you uh, take up rowing uh, while you're at university, you get called uh, a novice. Uh, a novice is someone who hasn't uh, ever rowed before. Uh, so I decided in my second year of university that I wanted to become uh, a novice rower. Uh, and I tried out for the boat squad, uh, and I managed to get myself into one of the four novice teams. Uh, and as a, a rowing crew, we trained really, really hard. Uh, we got up uh, at 7 a.m. in the morning, three times a week. We went to the gym, we trained, and we practiced really hard. Because when you're a novice rower, there is one competition that defines your whole year, the Novice Cup. It's when all the other novice rowers who've never um, rowed or coxed uh, decide that they're going to race each other to find out who is the best of a truly terrible lot of rowers. Uh, and uh, the novice cup was coming up uh, and they, uh, they were picking our, our positions in the boats and they asked me to be the stroke. Now, that filled me with pride because if you're the stroke, that means that you're uh, right at the back of the boat uh, and everyone is looking forward and they can see you. Uh, and you're the one that has to set the tempo for the whole boat. And I decided that must mean that I was the best rower in the boat. And I acted like uh, a younger, slightly better looking version of Matthew Pinson uh, and exuded that kind of uh, unbelievably annoying just attitudes. Uh, I realized I had one really important job as the stroke, one job and one job alone, and that was to set a rhythm and a tempo that everybody could follow. I had one job, one mission, one purpose, to set a rhythm that everyone could follow. Uh, so I trained really hard, I practiced hard at um, keeping a, a steady stroke that uh, the whole crew could follow and we uh, worked hard and trained hard as a squad. We got up early in the mornings, we went to the gym so that we could be ready for race day. 
And we went down to the um, stretch of water in Durham. And I remember thinking to myself, you've got one job today, James. Just keep it steady. Keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. Keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. Keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. And we got in our boat and we lined up against the other novice crew. And the gun went. And we started. And the start was totally fine. The start was totally fine. Uh, We were um, fluid and confident and strong. Uh, We were keeping pace with the other boats for 50, 100, 200 meters. And it got to uh, maybe uh, 300 meters, almost halfway down the course. And the other boat just slightly pulled out in front. I decided not to panic. I kept it cool. I realized I had one job. Keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. Keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. And we kept on going down the course. And then at 400, 500 meters, the other boat just started to pull out a little bit in front. And I realized that we were going to lose them. And then we came to a bridge. Now, the bridge was very wide. That wasn't the problem. Uh, The bridge was full of our friends. The Novice Cup is quite a big deal in Durham. And so the bridge was full of our friends there to cheer us on and uh, full of people that we might have fancied. So we were were quite keen in our rowing lycra to look impressive. I don't look good in lycra. I'm too slender for it. But uh, we were keen to look as impressive as we possibly could. And we were about to lose the race. And the other boat was pulling out further and further and further in front. And in that moment, I completely panicked. I completely panicked. I forgot my instructions. I forgot my one job, my one purpose, to keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow, to keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. Uh, I started bouncing up and down, up and down, up and down. A, A rhythm and a tempo that no one anywhere had any chance of possibly following, like a a drummer with no sense of rhythm. The whole band can't follow them. Dom, you're very good, but some drummers are truly appalling and you can't follow them. And then we went under the bridge and I'd completely lost it, going back and forwards, back and forwards, bombing up and down the slide. And as I put my oar in for one incredibly quick stroke, I tried to pull my oar out slightly too quick. And I did what in the rowing world we call a crab. Now, a crab's a slightly unusual word uh, for when the current in the water pins your oar under the surface. If you try and pull your oar out too quick, if you're not keeping a rhythm, the currents are going to collide and they're going to pin your oar under the water. And it did it right as we were under the bridge. And when you catch a crab, two things happen. One, uh, you can't get your oar out. It's like uh, someone suddenly slams the brakes on the boat. It's like you're trying to um, cycle with both of the brakes held firmly down. You just can't do it. So we uh, very quickly ground to a halt. The second thing, which is slightly more embarrassing when you catch a crab, uh, is that uh, the pressure of the oar pushes you back and makes you lean backwards. So that as you're coming out from under the bridge, you have your head in the lap of the rower behind you and you can make eye contact with every single one of the girls that you fancy on the bridge. It was so humiliating. I had one job, one task, one purpose, keep a steady rhythm that everyone can follow. And I completely bottled it. I panicked. In the moment, in the pressure, I so badly wanted to win the race with the crew that I meant that we completely lost it. I had one job, one purpose, one thing to focus on, to keep a steady rhythm that everyone could follow. Jesus tonight is giving us one task, one mission, one purpose, one rhythm for us to live our lives by. 
Uh, He wants us to be filled with the Spirit of God, uh, to be filled with his love, with his grace, with his power, as he talks about it in our text tonight, to be filled with his power and then to go out, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth, beyond the edge of the map, Uh, beyond what you know, beyond what you're comfortable with, to a place where no one knows you, where they don't know your name, the culture is different, go even into those places that are most difficult for you to be uh, and declare that I am King and that I am Lord. Tonight Jesus is giving us one very clear, very simple message, one rhythm for us to live by, one purpose. Be filled And as you're filled, out of the overflow of that, go and make him known. Tonight I want to ask you, are you doing that? Are you living that rhythm in your own life? Is that the walk that you're choosing to walk tonight? Is that the expression of your relationship with God, of you being filled with the Spirit? In our passage, Jesus is clear tonight that the result of the Spirit in your life isn't that you have a fuzzy feeling. It isn't that you come to church and you leave feeling slightly better about yourself. Uh, The work of the Spirit, according to our passage tonight, should lead you to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus. Uh, There's a rhythm in the gospel. Come and be filled and then go. Come and be filled and then go. Come and be filled and then go. Uh, Are you living that tonight? Is that how you're orientating your life? Is that the decision that you're making? To live a life where you are being filled with the Spirit day by day, day by day, day by day. And then you go out into the world to make Jesus known. Uh, At the start uh, of our passage tonight, uh, Luke uh, addresses uh, a man called Theophilus, uh, and he he does it in a kind of Netflix-style recap. The first uh, 12 verses of our passage tonight are like the opening uh, few minutes of an episode of Suits or Homeland or whatever your um, Netflix box set Uh, of choice is, uh, where they recap all of the different important things that have happened uh, in the episode that went before. Uh, Acts is the second part of Luke's gospel. Uh, So uh, Luke, uh, the author of Luke's gospel, is also the author of Acts. Uh, And Luke has written his gospel to someone called Theophilus. He sent that ahead. Uh, And then he sits down and he writes the Acts of the Apostles, the work of the early church, and he sends that afterwards. Uh, And the first 12 verses, the bit that we're looking at tonight, uh, is the recap of what went on before uh, and then a little bit of movement into what's to come. Uh, And as he uh, recaps, he picks out some of the important themes uh, that we find in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, namely that this is all about Jesus. That even though uh, it comes in the time after Jesus, when Jesus has ascended into heaven, that Jesus is right at the center of everything in the Acts of the Apostle. And in this uh, recap that uh, Luke does, uh, he writes uh, some of my favorite words in the whole of the book. Uh, He says this, Uh, Luke says that after uh, Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many proofs that he was still alive. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many proofs that he was still alive. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. Jesus has just been raised. He's just been resurrected. Uh, He's uh, standing in front of his disciples uh, and he has to prove to them that he is still real. He has to uh, prove to the disciples that he's not some kind of hallucination, that he's um, not some kind of ghost, that he is a real person standing in front of them. 
And if uh, Jesus has to prove to the disciples that he's a real person, that must mean that the disciples doubted. If Jesus has to prove, if he has to offer convincing proofs, that must mean that the disciples doubted. That they didn't quite believe what they were seeing. That they had questions. That they had worries. That they had concerns. And they didn't just keep those worries and concerns bottled up inside them, but they voiced them to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who's just uh, been raised from the dead, who's standing in front of them, uh, they have these doubts and these concerns about, is Jesus really who we think he is? Is he really standing here in front of us? Uh, The disciples bring their doubts and they bring their concerns to Jesus. Uh, How does Jesus respond? He responds with kindness and gentleness and love and mercy. He responds with many convincing proofs. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't tell them that their doubt is a sin and kick them out. But instead, he offers them many convincing proofs. He eats with them. He walks with them. He lets them put uh, their hands in his wounds. There's a, a kindness and a tenderness to Jesus. He doesn't get annoyed. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't uh, dismiss the disciples. Uh, but instead, he offers them convincing proofs. He meets them with love. I wonder tonight uh, where you have doubts. I wonder where you have questions. Uh, Maybe uh, events in Manchester this week or in uh, Egypt and further afield are making you doubt. It's raising questions for you about what kind of God it is that we worship, how we can let uh, such suffering and such evil happen in this world. Maybe there are things at home, things at work, that are causing you to doubt, that are causing you to question, who is it that God is? Is he really who I think he is? Maybe uh, you like everything to be very logical and very squared away, and you keep on finding um, rational and logical objections to Jesus, and that's causing you to doubt. That's causing you to question. Uh, We each have doubts that we carry around in our hearts. Uh, For me, the question and the doubt that I'm carrying in my heart Uh, revolves around a a friend whose uh, parent died recently, very suddenly. Uh, And for me, the the question in my uh, heart that I'm carrying is, what if uh, when we die, the lights just get turned out? What if that's it? What if when we die, there's nothing left afterwards? That's the doubt, that's the question I'm carrying in my heart. I I wonder, uh, what are the doubts in your heart? As we bring Jesus our doubts, as we bring him our questions, he doesn't uh, meet us with anger. He doesn't dismiss us. He doesn't disapprove. But instead, he meets us with love and with grace. He meets us with tenderness. He he gives us uh, many convincing proofs, not just one and then tells us to get over it, but time and time and time again, as many uh, questions and doubts as we have, uh, Jesus has love and grace and patience with you and patience with me. Maybe uh, you think that your doubts and your questions disqualify you uh, from the purpose and the task that Jesus is giving us in our passage tonight to go and make him known. Uh, Maybe you feel like your doubts mean that you shouldn't be involved in this. I think tonight that your doubt is one of the things that qualifies you for the thing that Jesus is calling you to. I think your doubt is one of the things that qualifies you to what Jesus is calling you to do. You see, Jesus doesn't dismiss his followers, his people who doubt, but instead he meets them kindly and patiently and offers them convincing proofs because he sees that there's an integrity and an honesty in them. 
Uh, they're opening themselves up. They're not um, cold and hard. They're not uh, putting on a pretense. They're not being arrogant and holding back, but they're saying, Jesus, this is who we are. These are our struggles. These are our problems. Uh, when we open ourselves up to Jesus like that, when we show him who we really are, what uh, really worries us, what really concerns us, Jesus can work with that. Uh, when we put up a wall, when we put up a pretense, when we pretend that we have no doubts, we pretend we have no worries, that uh, the things that happen in the world don't bother us, that things like Manchester um, don't make us ask questions. But Jesus wants us to come and to bring who we really are to bring what truly uh, is on our hearts. Uh, our doubts don't disqualify us, but are one of the things uh, that God works with. Uh, and so from that, uh, Jesus explains to his disciples what he wants them to do after he leaves. Uh, he says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about uh, his first experience with his disciples at the beginning of his ministry, his baptism, uh, when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's making reference to that. Uh, right at the end uh, of his ministry, of his time with his followers, uh, Jesus takes them right back to the beginning. And he reminds them that there's a baptism in the Holy Spirit coming for them. Uh, they're going to meet with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think one of the things that Jesus is implying here uh, is that this is nothing new to you. This is nothing new. Uh, let's go back, right back to the beginning, back uh, to when this all began, when I was uh, baptized by John and the Holy Spirit descended on me. Uh, this is nothing new. Jesus is drawing out that he didn't create the Holy Spirit. This isn't a new concept, but this is something that was there right from the very beginning. And uh, he trained his followers, his disciples, in what to do. Uh, he trained them. He sat down and he spoke with them. Uh, he demonstrated the work of the Holy Spirit in his life uh, through feeding the poor, through uh, seeing society transformed, through healing the sick, cleansing the lepers. Uh, and Jesus sent them out to do the same. Uh, he trained them in pairs so that they would know what to do. Uh, Jesus is drawing them back to the beginning to remind them that the thing that I'm asking you to do is the thing that you and me have been doing all along. He's taking them back to the beginning, back to where it all began. Uh, Jesus has been intentionally training him, training them. Uh, and then uh, from that, the disciples ask, uh, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Uh, the disciples uh, hear Jesus talking about leaving, uh, and so they assume that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. Uh, there was an assumption that the Messiah would bring about the restoration of the nation of Israel. Uh, so they hear that Jesus is leaving, and so uh, they assume that there must be a time coming when there's going to be land and borders and territory and a definable state of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it, how um, something changes. There's the threat of something new happening, and we immediately revert back to wanting the old thing. Uh, Jesus is about to leave. The disciples know that, and they immediately want to go back, back to when everything was tangible, back to the nostalgic good old days when there was boundaries and borders when there was a land under our feet. The disciples want to go back to the old thing, the old way, the old way of doing and being. And that's understandable. We all have times and moments in our lives when something changes, when something happens that's new and uncertain, and we want to go back to the old thing. Maybe you're finishing university and you're starting a new phase of your life and you want to go back to the old thing. Maybe you're having to make new friends. Maybe there's a change or a transition somewhere in your life and you find yourself wanting to go back to the old thing when it was tangible and definable. 
But uh, Jesus doesn't uh, indulge that question immediately. He kind of uh, sidesteps it and then he subverts it uh, in his response to them. Uh, He says this, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, He's saying, uh, don't worry about when that kingdom is coming back. Uh, That's not your concern. The Father knows that, so don't worry about it. Don't worry about dates or times or places. That, That will happen, but don't worry about it. Uh, And then Jesus says, he says, but go and be my witness. Go and be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, The word witness would have had a very particular uh, resonance and meaning for the disciples. Uh, When a king took the throne, uh, he would send out heralds to announce to bear witness to the new king on the throne. Uh, When uh, the Roman Emperor Nero took the throne, uh, which happened around about the time uh, of Jesus' death, when Nero took the throne, uh, he sent out heralds uh, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, from uh, the northern bit of Scotland to Nigeria, heralds were sent uh, to announce that there was a new king ascending the throne. Uh, That's what uh, the disciples, the apostles, would have uh, heard and recognized as Jesus says, go and be my witness. But in the call to go and be a witness, there's the implication that this is a kingdom not like any other. This is a kingdom without borders. Jesus says, first go to Jerusalem, go to the place where you are known and recognized, and then go out into Judea, and then go out even further still to Samaria. Samaria and Israel had a very difficult relationship. There was war and tension and conflict. You wouldn't even help out someone on the side of the road injured if they were a Samaritan. You would walk on by because they were unclean. And then he says, go even to the ends of the earth. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying that uh, I am the king. Uh, Announce me as that king. Uh, Point to my kingdom. Uh, And go, uh, not just uh, to the country that you're in, not just within these borders, but go out. Go even to places where you are uh, hated and despised, to warring tribes, because I am unifying everything. Uh, I am bringing unity. I'm transcending all borders. Uh, Go out to the place where you're not known. Uh, to the place that you have never been before and make me known. Uh, Jesus is sending his followers out to say that there is a new king. And as there's a new king, there's a new kingdom. As there's a new kingdom, there's a new way of living for you and for me. Uh, Are you pointing to that new king, to that new way of living? Uh, Are you pointing to that in your family, in your homes, in your workplaces? Are you doing it with the people that you know? Uh, with the people you struggle with, who you're um, always falling out with, always irritated by? Are you going even to the unknown place? Uh, Are you pointing out that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord? Jesus says, be filled by the Spirit and then go. Uh, The next thing that Jesus does is he leaves, he uh, ascends. Uh, Luke writes this, Uh, he says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid from him their sights. Uh, They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, uh, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. This is a slightly odd uh, bit of the Bible, isn't it? Um, It's very easy to imagine Jesus as some kind of divine spaceman, and that um, suddenly he kind of uh, levitates up, and then he jets out into outer space, past the ozone layer, and then kind of somewhere by a black hole, he kind of pops out into heaven. 
Um, that's not really what Luke is talking about, um, not least because Luke didn't know anything about space travel. But <laughs> uh, in the text, uh, it says that Jesus was hidden by a cloud. Jesus was hidden by a cloud. In the um, Old Testament, uh, clouds were synonymous with the presence of God. Uh, when the presence of God showed up in a temple, it turns up as a cloud. Uh, when the Israelites are walking through the desert, uh, they walk by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud in the day. Uh, so when Luke's saying uh, Jesus was enveloped, he was hidden behind a cloud, saying that he was taken up into the fullness of the presence of God, which is heaven. Jesus was taken up into the fullness of the presence of God, which is heaven. He didn't go up or down or left or right, but he went into the fullness of the presence of God. Uh, and then the disciples, the apostles, do what they've been asked to do, the rhythm they've been called to live their life by. Uh, they go to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room. And just a little bit uh, beyond the end of our passage, uh, it says that they constantly pray. For 10 days, they constantly pray. Are you praying that God's Spirit would fill you? The apostles sit in a room, they close the door, and for 10 days, they wait for the presence of God to fill them. They ask time and time and time again, God, would you come and fill us? God, would your presence fall? Would you change us? Would you transform us? Are you praying that prayer? Are you seeking God that his presence would fill you? At the start of our passage, Jesus says that the Father has promised you a gift. The gift is the Holy Spirit. When you ask that the Holy Spirit fills you, God will do it. He has promised it. This is a guarantee. It's in God's interest that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's in God's interest that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's not holding back. He's not stingy. He's not withholding something. But when you ask, he Gives. Are you asking that God would fill you with the Holy Spirit? Because Jesus is calling us to live our lives with one purpose, one focus, one rhythm tonight. He's saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you're filled, then go out. As you're filled with the Holy Spirit, bring me your doubts, bring me your questions. Don't withhold the stuff that worries you, that bothers you. Uh, bring that to me. Uh, and as I feel you, you will be sent out. Don't try and hold on to the old way, the old way of doing things, but instead recognize that I am doing something far bigger and far greater than you could ever imagine. I'm building my kingdom. I'm building my church. I'm inviting people to come and know me from any tribe, from any country. Uh, whether they're at war or at peace, Jesus is saying that I am the king of all and the king of the whole world. Uh, you're living your life by that rhythm. Before we do anything else, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to fill us. Amen.